Japanese animation turns 100 years old in 2017. The art form initially flourished in 1917, as animators including Oten Shimakawa and Seitaro Kitayama produced short comedic films that only ran a few minutes each. While the vast majority of these early animated shorts are now lost, due variously to time, humidity, earthquakes, and the American firebombing of Tokyo, Japan's animation, or anime to use the borrowed Japanese term, industry, has continued to thrive ever since. Numerous directors have been and gone over the decades, and the industry has expanded and contracted. But if we were to highlight a single filmmaker as the best artist anime has produced over that time, it's a fairly safe bet that the majority of fans, critics and observers will cite Hayao Miyazaki. Furthermore, if we were to highlight the very best film Miyazaki has directed, I suspect the majority would cite his 1988 fantasy My Neighbor Totoro. The film, it's a pure delight. It's warm, imaginative and inspiring. It is heavily seeped in a particularly Japanese sense of identity, so much so that it seems unimaginable for any other country to have created it. Miyazaki has written and directed many of the best films ever made, including Naushka of the Valley of the Wind, Porco Rosso, Howl's Moving Castle and Spirited Away. But when it comes down to pure iconic imagery and long-term cultural impact, Totoro is always going to be his crowning achievement. If we were to jump forward another century and look back at almost 200 years of Japanese animation, Totoro would still be one of the first films that I think would come to mind. I don't usually apply quite this much hyperbole when discussing a film, but occasionally a film comes along that simply deserves all of the acclaim it gets. And this is one of them. The film focuses on two sisters in Japan in the mid to late 1950s. Satsuki and Mei move with their university professor father to a dilapidated house in the country. This is after their mother's been hospitalised. As they explore the countryside around their home, they gradually discover an entire ecology of supernatural creatures, including Totoro, the keeper of the forest. The idea for Totoro came in part from Miyazaki's own childhood. His own mother was hospitalised with tuberculosis, and he too spent a great deal of his childhood exploring the local woods in rural Japan. It is likely, all things considered, that this is the closest thing to an autobiographical film that Miyazaki has made. Following the runaway success of his 1984 feature, Naushika of the Valley of the Wind, Hayao Miyazaki teamed with that film's producer, Toshio Suzuki, to establish a new independent production company, Studio Ghibli. Together they approached fellow director and long-time creative collaborator, Isao Takahata, to join the new outfit. Studio Ghibli was founded in mid-1985, and work immediately commenced on two feature films, Miyazaki's Castle in the Sky, known in Japan as Laputa, and Takahata's Grave of the Fireflies. Laputa was released first in August 1986, and the film was distributed by the Toei Company, which had also distributed Naushika two years earlier. While critically acclaimed, the film was nowhere near as popular as its predecessor. Its initially lacklustre performance put pressure on Studio Ghibli to launch a more successful film as soon as possible. And this presented a problem, since the next film scheduled for release was Grave of the Fireflies. Since its release, Grave of the Fireflies has established a couple of strong reputations. Firstly, and I think it is important to stress this before anything else, it is a widely acclaimed animated drama with a striking humanistic touch. We relate very closely to its two protagonists and care very much about them as the events of the film unfold. Secondly, it's a remarkably naturalistic film. The animated style is slightly abstracted, of course, but it tells a human story without any reliance on fantastical or unreal elements. Finally, and certainly most relevant in terms of its commercial prospects as a profitable film, Grave of the Fireflies is widely observed to be one of the most miserable and depressing animated feature films of all time. The film's set during World War II and follows two children, a brother and a sister, as they are orphaned by an American firebombing in Kobe and then made homeless by an unsympathetic aunt. 
Since the grim and unremittingly bleak tone of Takahata's film didn't seem a likely crowd-pleaser, the decision was made to pair it with a short feature. This 40-minute film would present a more lively and enjoyable experience for audiences, and boost Graves' commercial prospects in the process. And as he was not working on any film projects himself at the time, Miyazaki was persuaded to develop and direct this prospective short feature. My Neighbour Totoro With Grave continuing to occupy the Studio Ghibli Animation Studios, an entirely new and temporary facility was set up to accommodate the Totoro team. And as with all of Miyazaki's films, My Neighbour Totoro commenced production without a finished script. Miyazaki explained, I don't have the story finished and ready when we start work on a film. I usually don't have the time, so the story develops when I start drawing storyboards. The production starts very soon thereafter, while the storyboards are still developing. We never know what the story will be, but we keep working on the film as it develops. It's a dangerous way to make an animation film, and I would like it to be different, but unfortunately that's the way I work and everyone else is kind of forced to subject themselves to it. One consequence of Miyazaki's improvisational style was that Totoro's length expanded significantly. It was originally conceived as a short feature, but Miyazaki's final cut would run to 86 minutes. Making any feature-length animation is a time-consuming and laborious process, particularly for a company like Studio Ghibli, where exacting standards and Miyazaki's insistence on personally approving every frame added an extra layer of stress for the company's artists. Imagine then the stress in 1987 and 1988 for such a small company to produce not one, but two full-length animated features. Artists were regularly swapped between projects as and when they were acquired, and the schedule was ultimately so tight the Grave of the Fireflies missed its final deadline, and the film was actually released into cinemas in an incomplete form. Toho Studios signed an agreement to distribute both My Neighbor Totoro and Grave of the Fireflies, and the studio did elect to keep them as a double bill, and scheduled their release for April 1988. It is one of the strangest pairings I've ever witnessed, one film an immensely heartwarming children's fantasy and the other a bleak and harrowing tragedy about the human cost of war. In Totoro, Satsuki and Mei venture into the wilderness and find magical adventure. In Fireflies, Seita and Setsuko venture into their wilderness and find nothing but each other. It's possible to come up with ways in which the double bill does make some sort of thematic sense. As I've mentioned, both films follow a pair of siblings into the forest, but with disparate results. And it's possible to argue that one showed the despair that gripped Japan in the latter days of World War II, and the other a sort of growing optimism that was developing in the country ten years later. Grave was screened first. It's also possible to argue that together, Totoro and Fireflies showcase the broad range of stories that are possible within the animated medium. Whatever justification you use, however, there's no denying that giving a mainstream release to a film as confrontational and depressing as Grave of the Fireflies was essentially commercial suicide. And then strapping something as delicate and as charming as My my Neighbor Totoro to it on the way down was, I suppose, a sort of commercial mint warm to Toho's double, and they were initially written off as a costly misfire. It would be up to Miyazaki's hastily developed 1989 follow-up Kiki's Delivery Service to become a commercial hit and save Studio Ghibli from closing. Which it did, ultimately becoming the most successful Japanese film released that year. With most films, a commercial failure would mean its end consigned to a slow trickle of home video releases and occasional television broadcasts. My Neighbor Totoro, however, turned out to have an unexpected longevity. It formed an immediate cult following. Toy companies unexpectedly approached Studio Ghibli with requests to make and market Totoro and Cat Bus soft toys. Television broadcasts started to gather greater and greater audiences, and within a few years, My Neighbor Totoro would overcome its faltering start to become Studio Ghibli's most popular feature film. Later productions from the studio would benefit from greater commercial success in the cinemas, such as Miyazaki's mammoth hit Spirited Away. 
That became the first film to gross more than $200 million US before seeing the inside of an American theatre. But in terms of cultural impact, long-term popularity and legacy, My Own Neighbor Totoro became Studio Ghibli's greatest ever work. Totoro himself still forms the basis for the company's logo, and the sale of Totoro-related merchandise continues to bring in more money each year than their films do. There are several striking elements to My Neighbor Totoro. One of the key ones is that the film has no antagonist. There's drama, particularly when May goes missing during the film's climax, but there's no villain, and furthermore, no serious threat of harm to the protagonists, and this does remain unusual for a narrative feature film. Miyazaki said, I can't make films that are, you know, slave the villain, everybody's happy. I can't make these kinds of films. I think that when children become three or four years old, they just need to see Totoro. It's a very innocent film. I wanted to make a film in which there's a monster living next door, but you can't see it. Like when you walk into a forest, you sense something. You don't know what it is, but there's a certain presence. Notably, and despite being his fourth feature film as director, My Neighbor Totoro was the first of Miyazaki's films to be set in Japan. In the film's original project plan, he wrote, In this age of internationalization, we know that the essentially national is what can become most international. Why then don't we make fun, wonderful films actually set in Japan? The film's rural setting is unspecified. It draws inspiration from various parts of Japan, including Seijo, Sakura Gaoka, uh, Tokorozawa, Akita, and the Kandagawa River. Similarly, the time period of the film is fairly vague. The fashions of the film and the cars tend to date it to the mid to late 1950s, but nowhere more precise than that. This vagueness is actually a powerful tool for Miyazaki. In essence, nothing in the film is specified unless it needs to be. By refusing to pinpoint the the details, Miyazaki allows his audience to better engage with the story. It could be anywhere in Japan. Indeed, a young viewer could easily imagine the events take place just down the road from their own house. Similarly, Satsuki and May's mother's illness is never specified. As adults, we can make a fairly educated guess that it's tuberculosis, but why specify and deny the children watching a moment of identification? A sick parent is a reasonably common experience. In short, everything in the film that does not directly relate to Satsuki and May's experience in the forest is sidelined or hand-waved away. Every obstacle between the audience and the characters is carefully shifted out of the way. With one or two exceptions, the entire film is animated level. A child's eye level at that, no low angles and very few high ones. And with the exception of the soot sprites, the Totoros and the cat bus, everything in the film is deliberately designed in a comparatively realistic and understated manner. Miyazaki said, There weren't things I'd read about in a book, but they were all things and scenes I recall seeing. The house, the land, the water's surface, the trees and the plants. In that respect, making this film was a delightful process. If the setting were a foreign country, I wouldn't know about these things. That, that what would be there when the door was opened, or what kind of flowers bloom on the roadside. The extensions to Totoro's length were largely made in the first half, with Miyazaki taking more time to properly establish Satsuki, Mei, and their rural surroundings. It's a bold choice, and an unexpected one. The traditional expectation of a children's film about meeting fantastical creatures in a forest is that it will dive straight in and showcase scene after scene of strange, amusing fairies and goblins. Totoro holds off from revealing the title character for for an incredibly long amount of time, and once revealed, to be honest, he barely appears in the film at all. Miyazaki said, I thought he shouldn't appear too much. I'd also decided strictly against having scenes where Totoro sympathises with Satsuki because she's sad. Satsuki is so endearing as he, she searches for May. Totoro can see that May is right over there, and he may provide a service and take her on the cat bus. That's all that scene is about. He may not even be conscious of being a service to her. 
Totoro is a strange, utterly wonderful character. He stands about two metres tall. The other Totoro creatures we encounter are all much smaller. And he seems an odd combination of several different animals. One can see a tanuki, that's a Japanese raccoon dog, or a bear. One of the major visual influences would seem to be Miyazaki and Takahata's 1972 short feature, Panda Go Panda, in which a young girl befriends an enormous benevolent panda. And if you look at the two films together, visually there's quite a lot of similarities. Totoro is a peaceful, oddly sedate sort of character. He's not alarmed by the presence of Mei or Satsuki, but neither does he seem particularly engaged by them. This polite, slightly disinterested characterization makes the film's English title, at least, very apt. He's not a friend or a buddy. He's simply a neighbour. It also lends itself to the film's most accomplished and memorable scene, the bus stop. So Satsuki and May's father's late returning home from the university. They wait for him at the bus stop, and as the evening draws in and they continue to wait, May falls asleep. After a time, Satsuki hears someone else stand next to them at the stop. She peers out from under her umbrella and discovers Totoro waiting there. Since she's holding May, May thus no longer requires her own umbrella, Satsuki offers it to Totoro. Totoro's polite acceptance of the umbrella soon turns to fascination, and then to glee as he begins jumping up and down to make rainfall from the trees above, and then protect himself from the downpour with the umbrella. There's no narrative reason for this scene to be included, but it's a profound moment of character. Miyazaki said... Placing these scenes in a story gives me great joy, because their meaning cannot be explained in words, only images. That's what films have to do. Scenes such as the one at the bus stop are simply little moments of life, something Miyazaki himself was referred to as ma, a Japanese word for emptiness. He said, if you just have non-stop action with no breathing space at all, it's just busyness. But if you take a moment, then the tension building in the film can grow to a wider dimension. If you just have constant tension at 80 degrees all the time, you get numb. A bus arrives, but it's not the one carrying Mei and Satsuki's father. Instead, in what is one of the oddest moments in Japanese cinema, the bus is a cat. The cat bus is a massive orange 12-legged cat, and it's also a bus with a door magically opening on its side to allow its passengers to enter. Its back is lined with open windows, its eyes shine like headlights, it smiles like Lewis Carroll's Cheshire Cat. And to allow the 12-legged cat bus to move in a believable fashion, animators study the movements of centipedes. The resulting animation of this character is a perfect combination of realism and fantasy. It's clearly a creature that does not and cannot exist, yet it runs in a manner that makes it easy to accept. The cat's arrival is delightfully unsettling. Earlier edits of the scene used various musical cues by composer um, Joe Hisaishi. Some made the scene go too twee and sweet, others make it, made it too creepy and frightening for small children, who were the target market of the film. So the final edit removed Hisaishi's score for the scene entirely, and that enabled it to be just creepy enough but also strangely wonderful. In composing the film's score, Hisaishi deliberately avoided making any of the music sound mystical or fantastical, allowing more matter-of-fact melodies and arrangements to drive the film instead. As with the bus stop scene, much of the planned music was actually abandoned as both Hisaishi and Miyazaki realised that the film's visuals and tones carried the film forward well enough on its own. The only real conflict in the film arrives extremely late. Terrified that her mother is about to die, May runs off with an ear of corn to deliver, it, to deliver it to the hospital, and she becomes lost, and so Satsuki and the locals begin a frantic search to find her. As with the film's setting, May's going missing was based on Miyazaki's own childhood. A local boy had disappeared, and his parents feared he'd drowned in the river. The entire community mobilised to hunt for the body, only to discover the boy had been playing nearby all along. Miyazaki remembered this incident and incorporated it into Totoro's storyline. So Satsuki ultimately rushes to Totoro to ask for his help, and he takes her to the cat bus so that she can search the countryside faster. And as mentioned earlier, he never seems particularly concerned 
To be honest, he never seems that actively interested. As mentioned earlier again, he's never really a friend to the protagonist, just a benign character they happen to encounter. Suffice to say, the events end in happy circumstances and not in tragedy. And both Satsuki and May return home inside the cat bus. My Neighbor Totoro is a remarkable achievement in feature animation. It's created with a delicate touch, each element carefully drawn into the story in a free-flowing and organic manner. And despite its fantasy content, it is to the largest extent an everyday character drama. In fact, once you start adding up the film's various fantasy scenes, it's surprising how little characters like Totoro or the cat bus actually appear. The film is, in the end, drawn on a remarkably small scale. And by focusing on two small girls and their own experience, Miyazaki has managed to create something with unparalleled nuance and depth. It is, in short, a perfectly formed gem, a folkloric picture of a Japanese countryside that makes you want to climb into the screen and live there. Miyazaki said, I didn't make this film out of personal nostalgia for that time. I made it hoping that children would see it and then go go out to run around the fields or pick up acorns. I've been reading an essay from FictionMachine.com. It's a collection of essays about the making of films and uh, has a critical look in each essay about what makes each individual film work in the way that it does. Um, You can find the original essays at www.fictionmachine.com and you can follow a link at the top of the Podbean page or fictionmachine.com and that will take you to my Patreon page. And that's where you can pledge as little as a dollar a month to basically encourage me, help me, pay me back for writing these essays, recording them and putting them up online. So if you feel like being supportive, and obviously I'd love you to be supportive, have a look at the Patreon campaign and see if you want to contribute. If you don't, obviously I'm perfectly happy for you just to listen to or read the essays as they are. They will always be made online and they'll always be free. Thanks a lot and I'll see you next time.